0: Let us hear the Word of God, and I'm reading from the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians chapter 1, and reading from the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fool you "'with the knowledge of His will, "'through the wisdom and understanding "'that the Spirit gives, "'so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord "'and please Him in every way, "'bearing fruit in every good work, "'growing in the knowledge of God, "'being strengthened with all power "'according to His glorious might, "'so that you may have great endurance and patience.'" and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things invisible and visible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together." And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may the words that I speak, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to You, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I chose this morning to read from the first chapter of the book of Colossians because a large chunk of it, um, verses 9 to 17, were read yesterday by the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, at the coronation. It's the the reading that the Archbishop had chosen for the King that day, and I have to say, it it, it seemed to me very appropriate for a King to be reading this, because it starts off by saying, verse seven, verse nine rather, we have not stopped praying for you, and it goes on to say what we're praying for for the for, for the person, and it says that you be filled with God's knowledge, the knowledge of God's will, that you receive wisdom from the Holy Spirit that you live a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus, that you're given strength and endurance, and that you remember that all power comes from Jesus who is the ruler of the universe. Now, can you think of a better prayer for a king or indeed for a prime minister or for anybody in power or authority? Whether you're a monarchist or not, that's the sort of prayer that we should be praying. Um, Here's the thing, actually. We are not given a choice in the matter, did you know that? Because Paul says to Timothy, I urge you that prayers and intercessions and thanks given be given for kings and all those in authority. So, you know, that whole controversy about whether we were being invited to take a pledge of allegiance to the king. Well, you can take that or leave it, but here's the thing: you are commanded not by the law of the land, but by the word of God that you should be praying all the time for those in power and authority. And it's worth thinking about this because sometimes folks say well, I, I don't know I don't like the monarch, or I don't like the prime minister, or I don't like the first minister. Why should I pray for God's blessing on them? Well, here's the thing. When that was written by the apostle Paul that I've just read, the person in power was the emperor Nero. Now, let me just tell you that I don't think Paul was a big fan of the emperor Nero. And if Paul could say to us that we should pray for the Emperor Nero, then we should be able to pray for those that are in power, whether we agree with their politics or not. And that, by the way, is the reason that we will, as a church, continue to pray for our monarch. We will continue to pray for Rishi Sunak, our prime minister. We will continue to pray for Humza Yusuf, our first minister, because we are commanded to do that, that God's Holy Spirit might guide those that are in leadership in our land for the good of all of us. Now, it's interesting that yesterday when the king was crowned, he was given a crown which is obviously a symbol of power. It goes right back to the Roman emperors who wore diadems and eastern potentates who wore um, symbols of their power on their forehead. It goes right back to pagan times. But the king was also anointed, And that image of being anointed has its roots not in in antiquity so much as in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you see priests and prophets were anointed, and that anointing was a sign that they were being set apart for a special role that God had given them in leading His people. And then what happened was that anointing that was given to priests and to prophets for many centuries, when Israel eventually had a king, that anointing was given to the person who had the secular rule. So, the prophet Samuel anointed a young lad called David that he might be the king. And then, yes, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon the king if you were listening to the Handel's music yesterday. And what happened then was in Western Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire, as the pagan kings of the barbarian tribes that would become the countries of Western Europe, one by one became Christian, they were anointed by the church leaders to say that they were to be As they led their nations and their countries, they were to do it as Christians, and they were to receive the prayers of the people and the strength of God to be the rulers that they were supposed to be. Now, not all of them were good rulers, that's not the point. But we've got ahead of ourselves because the prayer that we read from the book of Colossians was not written for a king, was it? It was written for the people in Colossae. Colossae is in modern Turkey. I've been to Colossae, or rather when I say I've been to Colossae, I've passed it in a bus and it looked like that. I think it still looks like that today. Now, if you go to some of the cities that Paul wrote letters to today, to Rome or to Ephesus or even to Corinth and places like that, you can see some spectacular ruins. Has anyone been to Rome? Anyone been to Ephesus? You've seen the places that Paul went, fantastic Roman buildings. But if you go to Colossae, nobody could even be bothered excavating it. And the reason they did that was because it wasn't an impressive place. In fact, even in Paul's time, as he wrote the letter to it, it was a town in decline. The Romans liked to build roads, but when they came to Colossae, they built a bypass. Bypass. Nobody wanted to go there. And because the road took a bypass, the trade took a bypass, and so the town was beginning to decline. And maybe we've got some idea of what it feels like when a town begins to decline. In fact, it was not a very important place. Indeed, so much so that as Paul did all these missionary journeys, going to all the important places, he didn't bother going to Colossae. He never visited the place. And a few years after that, there was an earthquake. And a few years after that, it was abandoned. So who the heck cares about Colossae? Some people did. A guy called Epaphras did. He was born there. He traveled from there. He met Paul, and he came back to Colossae, and he was the one that started a little church there. There was a guy called Philemon who was almost certainly from Colossae. He owned a house, and the church almost certainly met in his house. So, he cared about Colossae because he lived there. And then there was Aphia, who might have been his sister, but might also have been his wife. And she cared about Colossae too. And there was Archippus, who was probably their son. And there was a guy called Onesimus, who was their slave. That's another whole story. What's my point? This place that wasn't important, and yet to some folk it was. Why? Because they lived there. In the grand scheme of things, in the whole of human progress, in the whole of what was happening in Christ, in the church that was growing, who cared about Colossae? And we might ask that question about the places that we live. Where do you live? Where are you from? Motherwell? right? Anyone from Wishaw? Anyone from Hamilton? Any other places? York Hill? Yeah, right. Now, if we were putting a big map of the world with all the important cities and all the important places, I don't know whether any of these places would feature. But here's the thing. They matter because they are the places that God has put people. Here's how the letter starts. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. We only know two things about these people. They were in Christ, and Scripture says almost as importantly, they were in Colossae. That's where God had put them to start their little church and do the things that we were doing. And you know the thing is, when you come to the Word of God, the strange thing is in the New Testament particularly, in the Old Testament as well, it isn't a set of universal ideas. It's always stories about people in particular places. The Old Testament is all centered in this tiny little unimportant place called Judea, which most of the big powers of the world ignored. And the New Testament, well, the first part is the Gospels, which are mainly circled in in, in sort of rural Galilee. Backwater of the Roman Empire, and then you've got these letters, and they're all written to people who lived in particular towns. No abstractions, just this idea of people in particular places. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, and in Motherwell, in New York Hill, in Wishaw, in Hamilton, we could go on. This idea that we are placed in particular places. We're in Christ, and we know what that means, or we we should know a little bit of what that means, and we should rejoice in it, we should grow in it, we should marvel in it, we should live in it, we should trust in it. But we're also in mother wool, and we should grow in that, and rejoice in that, and serve in that, and see that as something that God has given us. The other thing that it says here is to the saints. And we've spoken about this before. The term simply means to the holy people. You are the saints in Motherwell, in Wishaw, in Hamilton. And it's a strange word because holy ones are the holy people. And in the Old Testament, that was the priests and the prophets the religious people, the folk that God had set aside, had anointed with His Holy Spirit to do this spiritual work. And it it sort of cascaded on, so it was also the king because he was really important. But here we have it saying that these ordinary people are now God's holy people in that place in Colossae. Traders, laborers, parents, builders, artists, accountants, teachers, elderly folk, Slaves. You, says Paul as he writes to them, are God's holy people, anointed people. You are the ones that are filled with God's Spirit. You've heard of this guy. It's Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King. That was a bit later. Martin Luther started the Reformation. He's the reason we have the Protestant churches today. Back in 1517, He took 95 theses and nailed them to the door. We don't need to go into the details of all of them, but at the heart of it was His very important teaching on justification by faith, that we were saved by what Jesus had done on the cross and believing and trusting in that, not by doing a bunch of religious stuff or having a bunch of good works. That was the important understanding right at the heart of our Protestant faith. But Martin Luther also had another idea that was to change the world, and it was the idea of vocation. You see, in in the medieval church, it was very clear there were ordinary people who did ordinary things, and then God's call came on certain people, and they did holy things. You became a priest. You went into a nunnery. You became an abbot. And there were these holy places that were closer to God where people did holy work and were set apart for that holy thing There was a secular and a spiritual sphere. That's how the medieval church worked. Luther had a different idea. Because Luther said that every single Christian has a vocation. Every single Christian is called by God and put in a particular place with particular skills and particular callings for what they did. So just as some Christians might be priests or might be prophets or might be kings, other Christians would be cobblers or farmers or laborers or bakers or blacksmiths or wives or mothers or parents or civil servants. And all of these people were just as valuable, just as holy, just as anointed and equipped by the Spirit of God as the priest or the prophet or the king. Saints, in Christ, in Colossae. You might add that in all the different places that you are, in all the different work that you have. And what that changed was for Luther, there was no difference between the sacred and the secular. Secular. It wasn't that you came to church to do gaudy things, and then you did the rest of the things the rest of the time, but everything was to be touched. All work that we did in any type of work was to be work that was to be done and pleasing to God, whether you were raising children or, or doing house chores or working in a church or doing the gardening. It didn't matter. All of it was for God. No part of the body of Christ was more important than any other part. No part was any less where God had called it to be, to live, to please Him, to bless Him. Now, that's hardly surprising in some ways because back to the the Old Testament, remember we said that the Spirit of the Lord seen in the anointing was given to the prophets and the priests and the kings. What did the prophet Joel say in the Old Testament that would happen in the last days? In the last days my Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, will my Spirit be poured. And, of course, that speaks of the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of the Lord was poured on all of God's people, not just on the apostles not just on the priests, not just on the prophets, not just those who would be rulers, none of them would be rulers, but on all, on everyone, on all that they did. So, here's the thing. Yes, we pray for the king, and we pray that in the work that God has given him, he has God's anointing, and he has God's guidance. We pray for all of that, but we pray for that for every single person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ that God would bless them in their work as a teacher, as a lawyer, as a cleaner, as a parent, as a neighbor, as a friend, as a family member, as part of the community, wherever God has put them, the in colossi bit of being in Christ for each and every one of us. And Luther said more than that. He said this. He said, when we look at people doing work for us, we should look for God. Now, there is a sense that as we look at a king, we should see if the king is doing his job right, or the ruler, or the person in authority, we should see something of the justice of God. We should see something of the right of God as we look at them. But what Luther said is we should see that in every single Christian person as they do what God has given them to do. If we look at the baker we are looking beyond that to the God who feeds us. If we look at the person who is um, preaching, we look beyond that to the God who gives us His Word. But if we look at a parent, we look beyond that to the God who tends us. If we look at a gardener, we look beyond that to the God who created all of nature and makes it bloom. If we look at a craftsman, we look at a God who is creative. Everything that we look and we see, we see God in that. That picks up what Colossians says about Jesus. Jesus isn't just the one who came to save us, but He was the one that God made the whole world through. He was the one that makes sense of all creation. He was the purpose and the one who creation is healed in. It also means it doesn't matter whether you're working in Westminster Abbey or in Wilco. There, you're called to be and live out all that God calls you to. It doesn't matter whether you're living in Buckingham Palace or Brandon Parade. That is where God has called you to be and minister for Him, to live out for Him. He is the head of the body, Christ, the church, which means every part of church work, by the way, is His, whether you're cutting the grass or preaching the sermon. It doesn't matter. It's all done for the Lord. Whether you're the baker who's made the, the wonderful food we're going to have later on, or you're the person that put up the bunting, or you're going to move some chairs, are you going to visit somebody? All of this is work for the Lord, but so is the work you do in your office and your home and your family. You know, in Matthew chapter 12, mm. chapter 10 rather, Jesus gathers His 12 disciples and He sends them out to do mission. And He tells them to cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. That's quite an agenda, actually. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. And off they go, and they get all sorts of opposition. Jesus says that will happen to them. And they come back, and you know what Jesus says? He says, if anyone gives a cup of cold water to a child because he's my disciple, he will not lose his reward. And when you read that at first, you might be scratching your head. You know, cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons, and give water to children a bit of a contrast really, isn't it? And and in fact, some of the commentators looking at that have said, well, you know, it it must be a metaphor. The water must be spiritual water. So, this has really got to do with preaching the gospel, and the children must be the children. So, it's got to do with evangelizing the children of all the earth, and this is a big metaphor. No, I don't think so. Thirsty children can't drink a sermon. It's actually about giving water to children. What's the point discipleship is about everything it's about absolutely everything everything that we do is for him it says this later in colossians chapter 3 verse 17 whatever you do whatever you do whatever you do whether it's words or whether it's deeds, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. For you are anointed by the Holy Spirit for that purpose. For you are called to be in that place as much as a king is on a throne or a minister is ordained. That is the gospel And that is what it is about. What are you called to do? Let me say this. It's probably what you're doing right now. There are some folk that might get a call of God to go into a mission field or to move house or to do all sorts of things. But for most of us, what we are called to do is what we're called to do right now. Where are you called to be? For most of us, it's the places that we are already, but in those places, in that work, to do it for the Lord Jesus consciously, for He is the all in all.